Hey friends, welcome to Life Together Unscripted. This podcast is for those of us who are just a bit tired of everything that looks so polished and schmick in the world. Production that's squeaky clean that you know has been practiced a million times. So we are hopeful that you enjoy the unedited and unscripted nature of this show. We can promise you that this episode you're listening to today uh, was unplanned on the front end and unedited and untouched on the back end. So we hope you enjoy this episode. This is Life Together Unscripted. Hey there, Jane. How are you? I'm really well, Dom. How are you? Yeah, yeah. Doing good, thanks. Been a while, hey? Yes, yes, Taz. Yeah, good one. Um, I, well, I guess I'll just jump right in. I was scrolling through Facebook the other day and noticed that you um, had a TED Talk, and which was very cool, very exciting. Um, it was neat to see you in that format um, because we've only, you know, chatted. And so seeing you in a professional setting like that was very cool. And I was curious to know, um, look, what, uh, how does that even happen? Did you talk to Ted himself? Like what? How does that originate? Sure. So um, it was actually a TEDx event, which is an independently run event um, that TED obviously, um, you know, approves, mm-hmm. um, but uh, outside of the, the schedule. Um, in 2020, obviously, um, when COVID hit, um, like a whole heap of other industries and organisations and everyone pretty much in the world um, needed to uh, pivot or to rethink how um, how they uh, deliver, um, how they impart information. And um, so uh, TEDx, the TEDx event that I was a part of uh, was run um, through a university and we were able to, so it's an application process. So you have to present an idea um, to the organisers and then um, they choose a small number that sort of have um, interwoven themes, I guess. Um, and it's got to be the, an idea worth spreading is yeah. their tagline. Okay. Um, so I will take any platform that I can to talk about things that I'm passionate about. So I um, decided to throw my hat in the ring. Yeah, that's so cool. Could you tell me something like anything interesting about the application process or anything that you thought was um yeah, was there any hiccups? Was it pretty straightforward? Was it um, nerve wracking? Like, just tell me, like, what is it even like to kind of put yourself out there in that forum, in that arena? Sure. So um, I think, you know, COVID was the biggest hiccup um, Mm -hmm. in the sense that um, for those of you that don't know, Ted, um, uh, events are generally live events. They're in big auditoriums where people come and they want to um, hear new ideas. They want to be challenged um, to consider um, different worldviews. Um, and ultimately, we want social change, um, you know, to, to happen as a result of these live events. Um, so uh, this event uh, couldn't be um, live because of the COVID restrictions. Um, so I think the uh, the biggest um, hurdle was to uh, present um, to a very very small camera crew that yeah. were all marked up um, and and still um, try and and 
uh, create a live feel about it. And then yeah. we had an online um, launch uh, where there were um, the each of the um, talks were presented, and then there was discussion, etc. Um, so yeah, it was it was a different um, way than we had anticipated. Um, TED provides a really intensive training program um, as part of um, part of the process. So um, you know, to stay on brand, you know, mm. there there are certain um, uh, I guess not not restrictions, but there are. Um, uh, a certain requirements that you've got to fulfill um, mm. around the content, what you talk about, um, around how um, how long you present for, mm. um, and and just in the the way that you present information. So it's got to be um, to the widest audience possible. Um, mm. So if you're an expert on a particular topic, you need to be able to um, consider the way that you present that information um, to a person who, you know, and may never have heard of the topic before. Um, so, yeah, there were um, uh several training sessions that we did as a group. Um, we had to present to a range of different people in our lives um, to get feedback um, on, on tone, pace, content. You know, there were um, a little checklist of, of things that we had to go through. So it was, um, look, in terms of professional development, it was a great um, yeah. way of um, building my own um, uh, skills around public speaking. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and, and absolutely. What's really interesting, um, so funny to hear that because there is a certain feel and you presented very much in a TED way. Like, I, I don't know how to say that, but you felt very much on brand. Um, as I was watching, I'm like, oh, wow, it's interesting to hear Jane speak this way. And then if you watch other TED Talks, there is a familiarity with that. And so they're, they're doing a good job to kind of work you guys through and make sure that they're getting what they want. Is there like a... Um, uh, and maybe, I don't know if you can kind of talk about this, but is there a final say? Like you've gone through classes together to kind of work through, um, is there any um, areas where they seek to cut or edit or um, you, you talked about what it looks like to um, move you towards that? You know, if you're Jane Hickey or um, I don't know, pick whatever crazy big leader on whatever big topic, you know, do they, do they work with journalists? Do they work um, specifically with you? Sorry, not journalists, but like your publicist or anything like that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like in terms of the editing process, do you feel that you were able to say what you wanted to say? Do they have a final um, board or review process? What is that like at the very end? Sure. So um, there is, there, there's an element of, of autonomy in terms of, um, you know, you are respected as um, as having some sort of expertise to bring to the table, whether that's lived experience. A lot of TED Talks are around, you know, a, a lived experience. Um, others are more of, um, you know, the educational focus of a, of a theory or an idea and how that might apply to practice. Um so, you know, there is that, that level of respect there. There are um, uh, members of the team that will assist you in research because you've got to um, be able to, um, I guess, you know, validate if, if it's a certain um, theory that you're presenting. Um, 
Ultimately, once once the event occurs, um, there is a possibility um, that Ted, because then the the recording is sent to Ted um, to then um, upload onto their platform. So I guess there is the ultimate um, possibility that it may, um, uh, you know, not be chosen to be you know, put up on the platform, I guess. Um, But I didn't feel um, censored at all um, in the process. Um, There were uh, certain things that um, we're not allowed to um, to say, um, to remain, you know, they're talk- I'm talking about things that might be discriminatory or um, considered to be um, uh, racist or, you know, prejudicial to a particular group of people, um, which I think is completely understandable. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they don't, you know, want their right. brand to be associated with, you know, um, with that sort of content. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel like, um, like I was, I was sensitive in terms of what I wanted to say. Mm. Um, uh, the time constraint is is can be a challenging one um, because get me you know on a roll and I can talk for hours. <laughs> so you know, keeping it uh, succinct um, was a bit of a challenge. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and thank you. I, I suppose that was my implied question was, did you feel censored? Um, I was kind of working my way around it, but I appreciate you you saying that and I, I can hear that. Um, before we jump into the content and kind of what you're passionate and what you're on about, I was curious to know, you mentioned how in COVID last year, how you were um, in front of a small group of just camera crew. For you as a presenter or just public speaking in general, maybe talk to me about do you have a preference? Do you have a preference where it's just camera or live audience and maybe just the dynamic for yourself? Uh, what's that like? Is it nerve wracking? Is it enjoyable? Do you thrive off it? Just maybe tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So um, uh, as an educator, I stand up in front of groups um, every day. That's a part of my my job. Um, and COVID has taught me a lot about myself um, in, in, you know, the ways that I communicate, particularly uh, because I've had to deliver my classes um, online through a Zoom classroom um, in the past year. And so um, what I've learnt uh, through that process and through the process of doing the TEDx as well is that I rely a lot on, um, on facial uh, expressions on body language, on human interaction. And so um, I have found um, teaching in an online space to be challenging. Um, Yes, I can see um, faces as long as, you know, my students have their cameras on, Um, but it is, it's, for me, it's a poor reflection. Uh, Depending on, you know, the way that technology is, it can be a a poor reflection in terms of, you know, it's fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it's also, um, you know, it's 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 not like IRL. It's not like in, you know, in real life. Yeah, um, and so likewise, standing on the stage, um, you know, the camera crew were masked up as well. So mm-hmm. I couldn't even see, um, you know, some, some encouraging smiles or, yeah. you know, sort of any um, facial expressions. It was really limiting uh, and I felt um, I can see it in my face when I re-watch myself. Um, I much prefer um, the, the face-to-face interactions. Yeah, there's a real... Um 
blessing of this ability to connect it this way. Like, so my mom lives in California, for example, so I'm able to still do this, but there is still, I, I would agree with you, a massive um, barrier, I suppose, uh, to work through um, for, for the process. I was um, doing some story testimonies for Easter the other day. So our church is um, sharing of testimonies and things like that. And, and part of that process as a director is um, you're bearing your soul, the one who is on the other end, sharing something that's incredibly real, profound, deep. Uh, and I've got this sterile camera in front of you. And so I'm looking to break down this third wall um, and, and asking you to push further into that authentic space. But it's, it's a challenge when there are these technical devices or you know, sometimes um, working through that, it can um, mask some of our humanity, I suppose as you're talking about this, you know, Zoom process for your students and things like that. However, having said that, I do recognise that for others, it can be incredibly liberating. Mm. Um, so that, um, you know, that third wall that you speak of can mm. be reassuring and it can be a, a protective measure um, uh, for some young people that I work with. So uh, particularly um, students with high levels of anxiety, um, the the ability to um, engage with technology has, has actually improved participation rather than um, rather than decreased it. So we have had um, some of our students that have really enjoyed being in the Zoom classroom because um, they've been able to maintain their own personal environment. They feel safe. Um, they've been able to participate with the camera on or the camera off, um, uh, where in real life, um, those social anxieties of, you know, is is somebody judging me? Um, do I smell okay? Um, you know, uh, I'm I'm feeling sensory overload because you know the the fluoro light is you know is blinking or yeah. you know people are looking at me. All of those things um, can actually uh, be removed or minimised with technology. So yes. there are definitely pros and cons. Yeah. Uh, uh, depending on who you're working with. Yeah. And I so appreciate you saying that because even though I told that anecdotal story, I'm on the other end. I would absolutely, because of my anxiety and just different things, I would so much prefer being in front of a camera um, than to a room of whatever, 100 people or whatever. I, I clam up and it's all those things, those social anxieties, those, you know, fear of public speaking, all of that. But the camera, I'm like, I've eh, done it for years. I'm totally fine with it. So I appreciate you saying that. And it's a helpful reminder that there's a, a both end to that process, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, hey, well, I'd love to jump into the content itself. Um, tell me a little bit about your passion for what you spoke on, and then we'll just continue to dig and, and go from there. Sure. So um, uh, a little bit of background about me. I'm uh, a youth worker um, by qualification. So I've um, supported young people in community. I've worked for um, nonprofits um, uh, for about 12 years before coming to the university um, where I currently teach. So um, for me, the passion has been um, uh, a long time. Um, coming and um, I guess the you know where I'm at now um, allows that platform to be able to um, influence a, 
a broader way at more of a systemic level rather than, you know, the one-to-one advocacy or the group advocacy that I've done in the past. Um, So my passion really is around um, uh, social change in the area of disability. So how do we um, acknowledge the barriers Um, that exist for a range of people in our community Um, and as a society, once recognising what those are, how do we work um, towards changing them? Um, So we we make the distinction um, with the social model of disability that um, the there's a distinction between impairment and disability. So impairment um, being the uh, diagnosis uh, that a person has, um, but what is actually disabling is not the impairment or the diagnosis, but it's the environment in which um, that person lives. So, for example, um, an impairment, um, a young person may be able to live, um, participate and um, contribute really productively in their local community um, if the local community knows, understands them, if there are no physical barriers um, or there are no uh, barriers to the way that that young person communicates. But once um, a community doesn't understand that individual or um, has built environments that doesn't allow that young person to move through spaces in the community or doesn't understand the way that that young person communicates, that's when an impairment becomes disabling for that individual. That's really interesting. Like, um, sorry, my brain's going a million miles an hour, but yeah. as you're saying that, um, it's even in our language, right? Impairment versus disability and, and how we describe that. And so is it helpful then in terms of social change and in terms of education to see someone pick whatever um, their impairment is to say they're impaired as opposed to disabled, like even in the vernacular and the way we speak, like, you know, what's helpful in that conversation? And language is incredibly powerful. Mm. We see that through um, generations that um, words have um, had um, uh, meanings and those meanings have changed over time. And so words that we've used, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago are no longer considered um, to be, you know, socially appropriate. They're, they may even be considered to be slurs now. Yeah. Um, so, yes, language in Australia. Um, so we um, traditionally um, have used people-first language uh, where it's um, the person before the disability and that is an attempt to um, to acknowledge the humanity of the person rather than seeing the disability as a deficit as a, you know what a person can't do and having the focus there hmm. so in a lot of government um, uh, reports and um, organizations you'll see people with disability or people with a disability or a person with a disability um, and so you'll see that language being person first language hmm. however um, it's not consistent because there are parts of the disability community that wish to use identity first language and that's where we have the identity as a disabled person 
yeah, um, uh, being recognised, um, and that's particularly around the um, we've got uh, positive disability identity or, or um, disability pride, um, where uh, parts of the sector are reclaiming words um, to to not to challenge that deficit mode. So um, the autistic community, for example, um, a lot of young people will say, I am autistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wish to be referred to as an autistic young person because it is part of my identity. It's not something that I have, right? So um, you, can, you can see terms like um, a person with autism, right, whereas an autistic young person will say, I don't have autism. I am autistic. You yeah. see that that difference? Yes, absolutely. And it's um, similar with the deaf community. Um, I am deaf rather than I have deafness. Yeah, but there are other parts of the community that say, um, uh, for example, a young person with chronic fatigue syndrome. Right, I am not chronic fatigue. Right. It's something that I have. It's a part of who I am, but it is not um, linked so much to my identity. Jane, uh, that is fascinating. And you know why it's really interesting is because about 10, we moved here 10 years ago and as an American firsthand, you said that um, probably Australia resonates in this way. And and I'm not sure of the facts, so please fact check me, but I would assume America has a more um, comfortable stance with the identity markers because for me, um, I would hear um, I am autistic or I really, you know, that language is much more readily acceptable and even going to, um, and it's not a stigmatized, it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's just, uh, I am that thing. And part of that helps that culture, at least have an awareness or understanding of what that person goes through. Um, so one of the things that I think of is like, um, I've got a psychology background, right? And if I can say, oh, that person um, is bipolar, or, or struggles with bipolar or whatever it is, I have a frame of reference that says I have a somewhat of a set of categories um, that help me to understand that, right? Whereas what I've come across here sometimes is a lack of that, um, potentially that even that understanding to label or an inability to label. Does that yeah, make sense? There is a difference there though as a, as a, um, as a practitioner, so um, having an understanding of um, of psychology, right, um, uh, gives you those frames of reference. However, um, we have still a lot of stigma in our community, um, particularly around mental health, but also in the broader disability community that when we hear a label, we have a whole heap of really unhelpful assumptions that come along with that. Um, And so that's where... um, uh, a lot of organisations try and move away from it because even individuals with the same diagnosis, it can impact the individual's body in a completely different way. Yeah. yeah? So when you meet um, one autistic young person, you meet one autistic young yes. person, yeah. you know, 
Um, And so, and that's where a lot of um, disability um, activists will say, I can't talk for the whole community because we are so diverse, whereas diverse is any other community. Um, So we have um, currently just under 18% of our population identifies as having a disability. So it's a significant minority, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We have some of a proportion of those um, are associated with older age. So as we age, uh, we acquire um, impairment. So, you know, our hearing, um, our vision, um, it might be, um, you know, a physical disability. So, or we might have a stroke or, you know, um, heart disease, those sorts of things can lead to, um, uh, you know, to significant impairment. Um, but we also have a proportion. So one in five um, of those um around 18% um, have hidden disability and that's where um, it's an impairment or a diagnosis that cannot be easily seen by other people. So um, we know, you know, with our wheelchair users, with people that um, have a guide dog or a cane, um, uh, those that have Down syndrome or other physical disabilities, um, there there are physical attributes that we assign to and understand disability. Um, but there's a lot less known when you can't see those physical attributes. Yeah, I would love to move towards that uh, in terms of the physical, uh, the mental or whatever, uh, cognitive. Um, but I want to park that for one sec because I'm curious to know in your um, understanding or expertise, where is it helpful to assign a name or an identity? And you've mentioned a couple of communities, a couple of areas of impairment versus um, there being a, a massive chasm of a lack of education. So you said autism, for example, and, and you're right to say one person, we have a spectrum, like there is a, so it doesn't represent the entire spectrum. So um, I guess I'm trying to make sense of this in processing in real time and also not putting my foot in my mouth, which I do often, but, but like how, uh, help me to understand where is it helpful that we have certain markers of, okay, this person's identity or this name for this thing is actually helpful because we have a frame of reference versus um, actually that throws on a, a whole bunch of baggage and labels and things like that, where it's just unhelpful for a culture to say, you are this or you struggle with this? Like, how how can we start to begin that conversation of language in a helpful way? Sure. Um, So the first um, sort of approach I have is, um, is what's your name, right? So, you know, getting to know you, Dom, as a person right? Um, we all have, we all have a name that we're given. We all have a name that we prefer. Um, and sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're different. And so when I first meet someone, that's what I'm interested in first. Okay. Um, and the quicker that I can learn your name, um, it tells you a really clear message. It tells you that Dom, you have value that I'm interested in who you are and that I'm interested in what you've got to contribute to this relationship, this context, this situation. Um, From there, it's about um, 
uh, creating an environment. Now, this might be a personal relationship. It might be a professional relationship. It's about um, creating an environment that makes it really um, easy to, um, to, to start that conversation, yeah? What is helpful for me to know about you um, for us to continue this journey together? And so I, um, when I teach in my classes, there are tens, hundreds of thousands of diagnoses in the DSM, you know, in the Diagnostical Statistical Manual. Um, we don't have time um, to go through each one of those to understand the pathology. And I don't actually think it's helpful all the time to learn from that perspective. Rather, I like to, to teach universal design, right, because it's about how can we create environments that are inclusive for everyone because if we create those environments to begin with, then it becomes more natural to um, for disclosure to occur when it needs to, but it doesn't always need to. Because if the environment is already set up, if you're welcomed in, if you feel like you belong, if you can physically get into the space, yeah, um, if the space is flexible enough for you, then um, you might not need to tell anyone that you have a particular diagnosis because it's no longer relevant, yeah, because you're being included. Yeah. Now, it may be relevant because it's a part of your identity. Great. I want to know more about that. But it doesn't necessarily. And, and sometimes the diagnosis becomes the default. Ah, oh, you have Down syndrome. You must belong over here, mm. right? Yeah. And this is where we have these segregated systems mm. um, where it becomes the default for families. They think, you know, that, um, that their kid belongs in special schools or in, you know, the, the disability recreation program um, because that's what's being offered to them as a result of the diagnosis rather than what's your kid interested in, you know, what are they passionate about? Oh, let's find, you know, this, this hobby or this sporting group or, you know, your local um, school and, Let's ensure that that environment is inclusive for them. Um, you, you've talked about universal design and you kind of just jumped straight into it, but I want to back yeah. up for one second. Sure, sure, Can sure. you give me the elevator pitch? What is the, you know, the one minute in, in essence, what is universal design as it relates to what you do? Yep. So it is a set of principles um, that uh, if we work from the design stage of anything. So it could be a built environment. We're building a new building or a new, you know, library or community space. It might be we're building a new, um, you know, teaching and learning series at church mm -hmm. um, or where um, we're building a new service to deliver to you know, a group in the in the community. Mm -hmm. um, it might be so. So whatever we're designing, mm -hmm. we use a set of principles to ensure that every member, from the tiny newborn baby, all the way through in the lifespan, to our 
you know, um, a hundred year old, um, wonderfully aged person, um, all, all members of the community are considered in how we design this space, this program, um, this service to the community. And if we design considering all members, right, um, then the, the benefit will be to all members. So, so often I hear people um, like in church, for example, or in spaces that say we don't need closed captions because we don't have any deaf people that come, um, you know, to our service or to our church. And my question is, um, do you not have anyone come because you don't have closed captions? Like, you know, it's the chicken and egg, which yes. comes first. Yeah. Um, you know, is is it because um, because you haven't designed mm -hmm. in an inclusive way, this is the result? Or is it because there's no one in your community? Because I would argue there are in yeah. every community, you know, people with disability. We can see it in the statistics. Um so there, you know, there's a big portion of that community that's being excluded from those everyday experiences. Yeah, and then by nature, if you're not in the room or your voice or your advocacy is not in the room, then by nature, you do have to move someone over to a specialized area, right? So you do have to move a deaf person over to this or this room to this room because that's by nature your default, right? And the majority, you don't know what you don't know. Yes, yeah. So um, uh, I don't use a wheelchair for mobility. So I don't notice, right, when I walk into a building, that lip, yeah, um, that moves from the, the curb into the doorway. Mm -hmm. I don't notice those three steps, right, yeah. that, that move to the next you know, um, a stack of chairs, or I don't, I don't notice that I have to, you know, move my body sideways to get into a narrow bathroom stall, right? I don't yeah. notice these things right. because um, I, I don't, um, they're not in my everyday experience, yeah, as, as a difficulty, yeah. or a challenge so if we don't have people in the room sitting at the table those voices being heard this is my everyday experience then we're going to continue to design right spaces that exclude members of our community yeah in in the cbd of melbourne we've got this building right that is just um you know, it, it's been, it's won awards. It's got this amazing, um, you know, climate rating. Um, uh, it's been advertised as this amazingly architectured building, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you walk in the door and there is this huge, massive um, set of stairs, right, right when you walk in the door. And it's, um, there are little tables set up 
along this staircase um, and it's a way of um, lowering energy because lifts, right, for example, take up energy. So we want people, you know, to, we want to promote healthy living, so we want people to walk more and not, you know, take lifts or elevate, um, escalators or whatever. Um, but the minute you walk in that door, right, you immediately are excluding parents and prams, right, from getting up to the next level. And we're hiding away accessibility, right, into the corners or out the back as alternative entries rather than, do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to get to some of the challenges and hiccups in your field as it relates yep. to exactly what you're moving towards. But I, I do want to park that for one second because I'm interested in um, where does this even fit in the future? Like, so what I'm thinking is like an org chart, for example, does this area fit somewhere in the HR department? Does it fit somewhere in the like um, uh, construction or, um, you know, development or architecture buildings? Like where does this area um, you know, if it's like seeking to expand and grow, what what rooms are you desiring to be in? Every room. Yeah. Right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I want it. I believe it's got to infiltrate every single department, every single community space, every single you know um, level of government. Because until we get representation at every single table, we are going to continue to exclude, right? So we do slowly, slowly, slowly see um, some representation. It's not enough. But we're seeing, um, uh, unfortunately, with government, we often see um, representation occurring when there's votes, right? Um, this is the cynical part of me. So uh, we do have focus on early intervention, right? Because parents are voters. We see um, focus sometimes on aged care, right? Because they're still voting. Yeah. Um, we don't see a lot of investment with our young people because they're not voters yet. Right. Um, and, but we do see we're seeing some movement towards um, economic participation because we want more young people in employment because then they're financially contributing. Um, but we need to think broader around what a contribution to society looks like and that's not always in paid work. Um, so, you know, our volunteering sector, et cetera, um, we, need to, we need to think about the social implications of what, you know, what a, a meaningful contribution um, looks like for all our members of community. Um, but, yes, I would argue that we need we need representation at every single table, um, that it's got to infiltrate from, from the bottom up. If our kids in the playground, right, are playing with a diverse group of children, it will become the the norm right it will not be all how are we going to fit right um this young person in this scenario because it's naturally how you know all of our areas look 
Finally, we've got some investment in schools. So we've got um, uh, inclusion schools starting from 2020. We um, had our first school open um, where the, um, the spaces are being designed more flexibly, um, where there are an increased number of students with disability um, being enrolled into the mainstream system. Um, uh, but it's going to take time. And so, yeah, I, I, I want to see. I want to see this everywhere. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, I'm trying to catch up, Jane, because it's honestly like it's not something I've spent a lot of time thinking through or processing. So you're, you're, um, it's really it's wonderful information. What would you say? So universal design is potentially... Um, I can see the, the the importance of that, right? But then what do you say to the person that potentially needs something specific? Or uh, I, I guess I'm trying to make sense of the inclusion model, but then someone actually does need something under themselves altogether different. Yeah. Is, that, is, yeah. there, is, there a, um, is there some balance or tension in that? Or I'm just trying to make sense of it at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm I'm not saying we're dumping all specialised services, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm saying is there needs to be choice, right? That in the past we've had a segregated system that says by default you have this diagnosis, you belong here, right? What in a, in a truly inclusive system we have a variety, right, of of services of spaces um, that that a person and a family are able to choose. So we do absolutely have. Um, we've got recreation programs. We've got um, sort of your um, peer mentoring, or um, you know, not not self help, but um, you know, support groups that are um, that are diagnosis specific right, um, and they've been created as safe spaces by particular groups of young people that identify um, that, you know, that other young people understand my lived experience. I feel safe here. Um, so I'm saying, you know, we certainly don't want to get rid of all specialised services, all um, uh, individualised you know, um, approaches or recognising particular need. But we want to get rid of, well, I do, I want to get rid of even the notion of special needs, right, because there isn't anything special about or anything different about particular needs. We all have needs in our lives, right, Um, depending on the ages and stages of life. Every student has their own learning needs in a classroom, yeah? Not one student's needs are more special Mm. than others. Mm. The way that they learn may be different, Mm -hmm. yeah? The way that they acquire a new skill might be different. It might take longer. It might require different resources. But this idea of special, yeah, creates the other, and we don't want to other because that takes away, that be, that creates an us and them rather than the inclusion of everyone. 
Yeah, that's wonderful. Hey, you know what you just reminded me of too? You, you talked about um, the other, and earlier you talked about uh, the name, like getting to know someone's name. And these are very um, Christ-like. This is a Christian podcast. So we've yet to touch on that. And I'm sure that um, uh, in your work, you, you have to really probably curb that. Um, but I'd love to know where is the overlap for you? Like, what are some of those vision values that, of course, because you're a Christian, you, you bring into this space of your work? And, and how do you see that, uh, that interplay, I suppose? Sure. I think um, two areas that come to mind when you ask the question. First one is um, the notion of unconditional positive regard, right? This is a, a, um, a psychological theory. It was created by a humanist, right? And, and, what I, and basically what it says is unconditional positive regard means that um, no matter what you do, Dom, it won't change my opinion of you right, that I see you in your humanity, right, um, and that when uh, you may present with um, a behaviour that might be challenging or it might be dangerous or you might make decisions in your life that are not, um, that are not good for you, right, that we're making a distinction between what you do and who you are. And so, you know, that I, I, um, I have positive regard for who you are right outside of what you do now that was that that's this um uh the approach that um that i used in when i was supporting in community um but actually it's the way i see that christ views us right with unconditional positive regard regardless of what you do i love you right because i made you i created you and you are you Right, and so that for me has been um, has been awesome to um, to really be able to see that um, through that that love, that care, that um, that positive regard, that I can then, yeah, really genuinely care about the people that I work with. Um, and then the other one is sort of my the way the the ver and I know it's 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 not great to take verses out of context, right? But um, sort of like um, what's been at the foundation of all that I've done is Micah six eight, right? Mm -hmm. That call to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And so um, for me, the justice part is really important, right? So I, um, I want a world that, um, that is fair, that gives everyone the opportunity to make decisions, to live the life that they choose and to participate and have a seat at the table, right, to have a voice. So that's the act justly, right, and be able to speak out when I see that discrimination happening in community. The love mercy is just the, I just, um, sometimes our most um, most vulnerable people in our community, um, uh, there's this notion of do they deserve or do they not deserve, you know, care and, and love? Have they made choices that have led to the situation where they're in, you know, so they don't deserve it? Like all of the, the world sees people um for me it's that that kindness and that love and that care 
of just because you're a person, right? Regardless of anything else, it just, I believe that you deserve respect, dignity. Everyone does, regardless of what you've done. Um, and then, yeah, that that walk humbly. This is not going to get me, um, right, the 500 grand a year, you know, the the CEO position, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's the it's a vocation, right? Ultimately, um, beyond the paycheck, it's about the contribution. Sometimes um, we talk about um, a legacy. What do you want to be known for, right? When you leave this earth, how do you want people to be talking? You know, uh, and remember about you. Um, and so that's, that sort of, you know, motivates me in my area. So good, Jane. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's just, um, yeah, it's good. Um, I think like, as we kind of move towards the end and, and winding up our time together, I'd be keen to know, um, what are actually, what are different ways and levels of, um, awareness, support, um, getting involved. So like, what is gold standard? And then maybe what is just moving a, a, a good human being or a person desiring to do good one step closer, you know, like on either end, what are, what are some of those things that um, we could be doing to champion this cause and to, um, yeah. Sure. Um, so I think the first thing is, is um, don't expect people with disability to be your educator right so um when when i talk to my colleagues and my my friends with disability um uh what what takes a lot of emotional energy is answering the questions right Mm -hmm. um that just because they have a particular impairment or diagnosis therefore they suddenly become experts in all things Mm -hmm. disability and you know um have a um a requirement to be the representative and speak on behalf of you know Mm -hmm. um and so as as non-disabled or as allies um you know we have at our fingertips, we have so much information available to us. So, you know, researching um, yourself, um, the looking beyond, right? So um, uh, there are some times where um, you can feel uncomfortable. So, Dom, you mentioned before about not wanting to put your foot in it, right? Sometimes we can be so fearful about saying the wrong thing mm. that we say nothing at all, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the whole don't stare, you know, I've never told my kids don't stare but actually invited um, my kids to engage in a conversation mm. um, with someone who looks different to them. Yeah. You know, there is that natural human curiosity, right? Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, don't um, uh, objectify, right? So um, mm. there's a fabulous, fabulous uh, TED Talk by Stella Young, um, who was an Australian comedian, and she says, um, you know, she refers to it as inspiration porn, right, where People with disability are objectified, right, and and are um, held up as inspiration for others mm. um, 
for really just, you know, getting up out of bed and yeah. remembering their own name. For, yeah. you know, nothing, um, there's such low expectations, yeah, mm. often for people with disability. Mm. Um, so uh, remembering humanity that at the end of the day, yeah, that our diversity is, is actually a what I consider to be a benefit mm. and that we can celebrate that diversity, um, that... Um, that our needs are actually are actually universal. We all have needs. At the end of the day, we all want to belong. We all want to be loved. We all want to ha- have some sort of contribution, yeah, be heard and have a voice. You know, that's not actually different um, uh, to, you know, to anyone else in our community. Um, and be prepared to, to apologise, to... Um, to acknowledge, yeah, that you don't know something and that you might have done something wrong or not done something that you that you could have done um, because we've all got a part to play in, in creating inclusive spaces. So good. Um, you're so passionate about this and it's so, um, it's really cool to speak to someone who's passionate, you know, because you would just exude that and it's life giving, like your, it's like this, your passion comes across the screen, you know, and it's, it's attractive in that way. Um, I just want to thank you for that. Is there anything lastly, Jane, as we, um, adjourn here that you would like to, um, yeah, Spruik or like, is there a website or a blog or, um, just any nonprofit or is there anything that you'd like to promote in that regard or, or move people towards? Um, look, I, I, I think there's, there's heaps, there is so much out there. Um, oh, perhaps not one more than another. Okay, um, that's fine. It was just more anything that you were working on personally. You don't have to be the, um, uh, professional on all things, resources yeah, yeah. and things like that. It was just an opportunity to share of anything you're working on, excited about, or, um, yeah, anything. Sure, sure. With, um, I would encourage people with their entertainment um, to to critique um, and to always challenge. So if you're watching a film um, about a person with disability, um, look it up. Is this um, being portrayed by an actor with disability? If it's not, why not? Um, you know, there's, there's uh, becoming more and more um, of a push to uh, pay us, don't play us, yeah, this notion that um, we have, you know, actors with disability that are uh, that are wanting to be employed um, and we can remove some of those unhelpful perceptions and those, um, those incorrect portrayals um, through that representation as well, um, yeah. That's good, Jane. Thank you so much for your time today. It was an absolute blessing to to sit and chat with you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dom. Take care. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening today. If you found this episode helpful, please do share it with a friend. We want others to uh, embrace this unscripted life, this uh, life apart from promotion or perfection, but honesty and purity and love. So until we catch up again, let's consider how we may spur each other on for love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging each other as we see the day approaching. Love you guys. Peace.